Hello, hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and let's check out four key numbers. There are only 19 days until Election Day, which, as we all know by now, is actually the last day of voting. 14 million people, that's today, 14 million people have already voted, a record according to the U.S. Election Project at the University of Florida. That is 10% of all the votes cast in 2016. 538.com, another number, projects that Donald Trump still has a slightly better chance than 1 in 10 of winning. That's 13%. Joe Biden is given an 87% chance. And then the last part, the, no the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says that there is now a 64.7% chance that 2020 will end up as the Earth's hottest on record. The previous record, by the way, was set in 2016, and we know that bad things happened in 2016. So if you are having any doubt about how important this election is, if you were just exhausted, if you were just tired of being tired, then write out that last number in big digits, 64.7%. Tape it to your refrigerator. Just look at it and remind yourself what is at stake in the next 19 days. It isn't just the soul of America, as Biden likes to say, stealing from Marianne Williamson. It is about the fate of Earth. We are breaking temperature records at a frightening pace, faster, faster than climate scientists forecasted. Last month was the hottest September on record and the 44th straight September that was warmer than the average for the 20th century. Think about that. No one, no one under the age of 44 has experienced a cooler than average September. Summers are getting longer. Colder climates are getting warmer. The ice is melting and our future is on the line. There will be no Green New Deal under Donald Trump. There will be no global climate agreement or a better global climate agreement under Donald Trump. There will be national forests and parks ripped to shreds permanently for a few years of oil and gas profits under Donald Trump. There will be no EPA under Donald Trump. Clean air, clean water. Nixon would be never trumping Trump at this point because of course those were his acts. Now, there will be a Paris Climate Accord Agreement under the Democrats and Joe Biden and hopefully a better one. There will be a new green energy plan, even if it isn't our perfect plan, because it has been written by Sunrise Movement. I find the Kamala Harris pandering over fracking just lacked, lacking total electoral sophistication. It is like corporate money muscle memory when she said those things on the debate stage and then tweeted it out. I would ban fracking today. I was part of an anti-fracking movement. And my dear friend and, and, and colleague and comrade, Josh Fox, the Oscar-nominated director of Gasland, which woke up the world about fracking, as he pointed out on our show just the other day, the fracking industry will collapse of its own accord as we press forward with renewable energy, wind, solar. As the alternatives to fossil fuels get cheaper and cheaper, the defense of fracking will get dumber and dumber. The industry will die out as capital moves in other directions. So even if your core issue is fracking, an aggressive plan to move the country away from fossil fuels will reduce and ultimately end fracking. On the other hand, Donald Trump's leadership on climate will make September in the future, every September in the future, feel like Death Valley in August. And my friends down in Arizona, they know this because they had four months of consecutive 100 degree days. Four months of that. That is not normal. We have been in this difficult place before swallowing a cat candidate who is not ours. The left, actually, didn't like FDR. 
They saw clearly that that moment of the Great Depression called for radical answers. And FDR was a way for capitalism to survive. He was the alternative to socialism. Yet under pressure of the moment and a powerful demand for change from the left, FDR still brought the New Deal. Biden, make no mistake, is no FDR. But the moment is just as big. In many ways, the chance for change might be even bigger. He has no choice if he wants to be an effective president to act big, if he wants a good legacy, if he wants the Democratic Party to exist, if he wants the United States to maintain any form of idea of the American dream. If Trump is defeated, the path to change opens up. It won't guarantee we win, and, and it really will be about big fights in the future. But Trump's reelection guarantees destruction. You may disagree with me on this, but neoliberalism is dying. And we, a growing progressive movement, a young progressive movement, we need a guarantee that Sunrise keeps writing Biden's climate plans and we threaten primaries and protest their offices if the neoliberals don't recognize this crisis or they'll be voted out. Maybe not the first time or the second time or even the third time, but we don't give up because the stakes are too high. Look at Cori Bush. She didn't give up. She kept running and she won. So Trump and Biden were supposed to hold that town hall style debate tonight, right? Well, who knows? Maybe they even would have you know, discussed climate change in some form. But Trump pulled the plug when the debate commission said that the candidates should meet virtually, just like you know the rest of us, to prevent that spread of COVID-19. But Macho Man Trump said that this was not his way, uh, which is puzzling since he knows all about online bullying. That's his whole thing. Uh, so instead of the debate tonight, Biden and Trump will hold separate town halls on separate TV networks at the same time at 8 p.m. Eastern. Remember, the debate commission was created to guarantee some tentpole moments in the general election and take the maneuvering away from both the campaigns and the corporate media. That is yet another example how Donald Trump eviscerates any kind of process and oversight. When Trump wrecked the commission's plan for tonight, Biden and ABC agreed to a town hall at 8 p.m. Then Trump worked out a competing plan at his old apprentice home at NBC at 8 p.m. It really is hard to understand the minds at work at NBC. Uh, we don't expect much from corporate media, but this, really? Why not hold the Trump rally, town hall, whatever you want to call it, after the Biden town hall? What was the problem with 9 p.m. Eastern? They didn't want to disrupt their new show, Connecting, which is about life in the pandemic, by showing the guy who has been central in our lives to the pandemic, who has exacerbated the pandemic. Okay, great. This is hardly the worst offense by corporate media, but it may actually be the stupidest because it comes at the stupidest moment in the stupidest way, and it shows that at the end of the day, they care more about profits than actual change. Anyway, you can watch what you want and record the rest. But we have a fantastic show today. We have Ryan Grimm here to talk about the Supreme Court. Then Rep. Rab is back from Pennsylvania and Senator Martin Quizada from Arizona is here to discuss the two swing states and what is at stake. But first, guys, have you subscribed? Make sure to subscribe and click like, smash that like button and join us on Patreon.com for as low as $5 a month. That's Patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. All right, this is what is at the top of my newsfeed today. Columbia researchers found that COVID has brought about a significant increase in the number of Americans living in poverty, specifically after this number decreased by 4 million with the passage of the CARES Act, a $2 trillion stimulus package. It increased once again, once the first stimulus ran its course by 8 
million people. Taking away the $600 a weekly unemployment benefit, refusing to release any more stimulus checks, the federal government now has data to show that the American people deserve direct support during this pandemic. The result of this inaction is a vast number of Americans now facing financial instability and hardship. Nancy Pelosi's defense of the Democrats is that they form the party of, that feeds the people. Well, here's the real question. Why did you stop? Bernie Sanders took Amy Coney Barrett to task as a, quote, right-wing extremist for her remarks and beliefs on the constitutionality of Medicare and Social Security. When Barrett refused to clarify whether she viewed Medicare and Social Security as an overstepping of constitutional limitations on government, Sanders responded, quote, Social Security has been law of the land for 85 years, Medicare for 55. Tens of millions are dependent upon these programs for retirement, security, and health care. And Judge Barrett doesn't know if they are constitutional? Really? That's what right-wing extremism is all about, end quote. Sanders' words invoke the America that he promised to build on the campaign trail, an America that works for all of us, not just the wealthy few. Make no mistake, Amy Coney Barrett wants you to think that she opposes social programs as a matter of staying true to the country's original values. But the only values she's beholden to are those of corporate interests. To say that America doesn't deserve the most basic social programs is right-wing extremism is its truest essence. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later with Ryan Grimm. But my last news peg uh, on my list today is new data serves as a chilling reminder of the disenfranchisement caused by our exploitative criminal justice system. According to reporting from Common Dreams, 5.2 million Americans will not be able to vote in November because of laws regarding the voting rights of ex-felons. The sentencing project, which released this data, calculates that one in every 44 Americans will lose their vote because of these laws. This statistic increases to one in 16 for black men. What we need is not a punitive incarceration system that depends upon things like the war on drugs to lock people up. It seems obvious to me that a justice system that follows a profit motive to decide who will be stripped of the rights has no right to be called just in the first place. Yes, ex-felons deserve the right to vote. But this is only the first transformation of our justice system that needs to take place. In the meantime, we have a great show today. Ryan Grimm is up next to chat about Amy Coney Barrett. And later, we have our senator and representatives, uh, Rep. Rab and Senator Martin Quezada from Arizona. We'll be right back after the break with Ryan Grimm. Ryan Grimm is the DC Bureau Chief for The Intercept, host of Deconstructed Podcast with The Intercept, and author of We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. He is here to chat, chat about his new piece out yesterday in The Intercept titled Amy Coney Barrett's Take on Voting Rights on the Voting Rights Act Exposes Her Entire Legal Philosophy is a Lie. But tell us how you really feel, Ryan. <laughs> Welcome, Ryan. Just saying it like it is. <laughs> um, you do not bury the lead. That's a good thing. Uh, so there's so much to hone good, in on good here. Good to see you. <laughs> it's good to see you, too. Uh, it's been a while. 
Um, so there's there's a lot to hone in on here when it comes to her record, her rulings, her opinions, uh, judicial or academic, as she likes to say. But voting is key here if she's confirmed before November 3rd. And you state in this piece, uh, there was one line in particular that you said, quote, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the top ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, asked Barrett about the case Shelby versus Holder. In particular, she asked Barrett if she agreed with her mentor, Justice Antonin Scalia's conclusion that the act was a, quote, perpetuation of racial entitlement. So what does her record on voting say about her potential opinion of this moment and then later uh, the potential opinion of the Voting Rights Act, which could be gutted furthermore um, at the Supreme Court? Well, you know, philosophically, she lines up with uh, Antonin Scalia quite, quite squarely. And Scalia has been, you know, thoroughly hostile uh, to the idea of any any federal oversight or any federal involvement in in voting. You know, the 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 originalists believe quite firmly that voting is a state's issue, and if if they were being entirely honest, because you know they can't because it, there are, there are some political boundaries that exist here. But if they were being entirely honest and and pushing forward their originalist interpretation of of the federal government's relationship with voting they would uh, they they would allow states to ban women from voting uh you know outside of the uh, constitutional amendment which you know they will acknowledge that if the constitution has been itself uh, amended then that supersedes what the original intent was but you know se- separate from that uh they they are really open to states putting in uh, any restrictions that they that the states feel are uh, legitimate because they feel it's it's up to the, it's the state's right to set uh, voting boundaries. Uh, when when uh, John Roberts uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act in, in 2013, he said, you know, this this business of divvying up uh, people by race is 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 sorted. You know, it, it, earlier he had said if you want to stop uh, discriminating against people by race, stop discriminating against people by race. That was kind of like his entire sentence. And he said, uh, the South has changed. Effectively, racism is over. And so you don't need these uh, this federal oversight anymore of, of uh, voting laws in the South. You know, within hours of that ruling, Texas had put in voting restrictions. Like that's how that's how quickly they moved. And, and the entire South you know, has kind of followed suit. But is there any precedent? I mean, it, it, just that statement in itself from 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 a justice is mind-blowing to me. That's like saying, let's get rid of our laws because they've protected enough people, so we don't need them anymore. Right. I mean, you, you could say that if you don't need them anymore, what's the harm of, you know, leaving them there? You know, they're not, they're just, they're just sitting there. They're just sitting there on the books. Um, you know, it, it was an unusual law in the sense that it, it, it discriminated against particular states. You know, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, when it passed, said that states that have a history of, of uh, racial discrimination uh, at the ballot box are going to be subject to harsher uh, uh, harsher oversight than, than states that don't, that, that roughly coincided with states who had joined the Confederacy and, and you know, states that were you know, actively you know, keeping uh, black voters off, off of the And off part of, of that is because so of Reconstruction, right? So it's true that they, right? they were treated, dis- yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, part of that right, is because so, of Reconstruction, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So, Right. So, in, you know, dur- during Reconstruction, and I, and I mentioned this as an aside in my story, there's there's a kind of a sordid story there. 
there were there were you know the the Republicans back then, Party of Lincoln, radical Republicans. So those those were the ones that were fighting for black for black rights for civil rights and and fighting to give the vote uh, to to black men in in particular. There were a lot of Republicans who said we need to put the right to vote directly into the Constitution. No ifs, ands, or buts. Like if if you're a man over the age of 21 at the time, then you have the right to vote and no state can restrict or abridge your right. But other Republicans, uh, moderate Republicans, you can call them, uh, didn't want to do that uh, because they, they're in their own self-interest, they wanted to suppress Chinese votes uh, and they wanted to suppress in particular Irish votes because the Irish immigrants were voting heavily uh, Democratic. And so they said, well, we'll, we'll just, We'll just say that you you know you can't you can't restrict the vote on the the basis of race, and so that's how they ended up writing that amendment. But what that means is that well you can restrict the vote by lots of other ways, and this and the Republicans devised ways to restrict it from uh, the Irish and the Chinese, and the Democrats devised ways to restrict it from Black voters in the South, literacy tests, uh, poll taxes, and when we say literacy tests, that's a that's a euphemism. It would you know. Uh, you know, if if a, a white voter came in, uh, they'd ask him, you know, what his name was, and that would be sufficient to vote. If a black voter came in, they'd have to, you know, recite by word, the, you know, the entire Constitution, like beginning to end, or 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 some other like completely like nearly impossible task. Though apparently some even um, succeeded in doing that because they would learn ahead of time what what they had to memorize, and they would memorize it. But then also often they they would they would be killed or or, or attacked uh, for for passing the test. Uh, so you know in, in 1890 is when Republicans uh, effectively uh, gave up. They came within a couple votes of passing uh, a, a bill that that would have kind of forced the federal government back into uh, oversight of, uh, of of black voting in the South. They they fell short. Democrats ended up taking taking control again, and uh, the blacks were driven from uh, the, the voting booth until, you know, basically the 1930s or so when um, uh, they started voting for, for FDR again. So for 50 years, they were kind of, you know, just, com you know, completely, completely written out of it. So when Barrett talks about being an originalist or a textualist, I mean, can you, in, in the context of, of voting rights specifically and what you just discussed, what does that mean? Right. And the reason I said it exposes her whole philosophy as a lie is that when when Fe when Feinstein asked her about the, the Voting Rights Act, the way that Barrett characterized it was to say, well, this was a question over whether the, the, the preclearance uh, coverage mandate was, you know, still uh, was still appropriate or the preclearance coverage calculation was still appropriate. And she, she deliberately used like extremely arcane language like that, that that nobody could follow if if. Uh, if they're not like a voting rights attorney. And, wh and what that basically means is that these particular states needed to have any changes they made to voting pre-cleared by the Justice Department. And so she's trying to uh, say that this is what the whole thing turns on. And she said, well, look, you know, may maybe this, maybe the, the statute needed to be updated from the 1960s. And that's where it got utterly absurd. You know, be because if you listen to her definition of both originalism and textualism, it's that, oh, excellent. Thank you for finding that. Uh, it, it's, it's that you, good, glad you found it. 
it, it's it's that you it's that you don't update laws based on you know there there being decades of of intervention or centuries you know if you're an originalist centuries of time passing don't matter and then it's not the courts can't just go and update a statute because because time has passed and they put their finger in the wind and felt the political winds are blowing in a different direction whereas john roberts said the south has changed like that's abhorrent to their entire idea of originalism and right. textualism but when it comes to the voting rights act she goes for it and to do it she lied further and and didn't mention that in 2006 the republican congress reauthorized the voting rights act as, after a multi-year long negotiation between democrats and republicans that passed 98 to 0 in the senate it passed with more than 300 votes in the house was signed into law in a big ceremony by george w bush it was a big deal so you know that the house and the senate and the white house sat down looked at the voting rights act updated it to 2006 mm -hmm. and then we're told seven years later by the supreme court that oh it's actually out of date and so uh you know the 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 levels of lies were were, were varied there um uh but the whole thing was shot through with with uh you know kind of fraudulent uh, a fraudulent approach to to, to the law wouldn't this argument also apply to the ACA? Wouldn't it apply to gay marriage? Wouldn't it apply to abortion laws? I mean, a little bit back and forth with states, but if, if you're going to be an originalist, if you're going to, I mean, especially with gay marriage, if, you're, if, 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 if that's the game you want to play, then great, let's play it. Originalism and textualism are results-oriented philosophies. You know, they, 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 have, <laughs> they started with the things that they want and they work backwards uh, to find some meaning in the text of a statute or in in the federalist papers somewhere that they then claim supports the result that they want uh when it doesn't support the result they want they just toss the entire project out the window okay it seems easy enough but okay that, yeah. that, <laughs> great logic um, works yeah it works for them works for the right judges exactly yeah uh, but on that note, this this is a movement. This is a right-wing movement. Uh, you discuss this in the piece. This is She is a product, Roberts is a product of this right-wing movement to put conservative justices in who can use this these arguments to justify their opinions. Um, so where, where did that start? Is that like a Koch brother? Who, who, who is, where did the, the origins well, of this movement start? Uh, kind of the, 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 I don't know if it's a myth or not. It's, sometimes it's overstated, but Lewis Powell, uh, you know, wrote wrote a memo in, I think, 1971, the famous Powell memo. He ended up becoming a Supreme Court justice saying that the business needed to get much more involved in in politics in a way that it, it hadn't been. It, it, it had been getting its, uh, you know, lunch eaten by Ralph Nader, of all people, um, you know, throughout the 60s. Uh, it, and so the argument was, look, if you want to push back against this New Deal coalition, you're going to have to get rough. You're going to have to start funding think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, and you're going to have to start funding legal organizations. You're going to have to start funding actual partisan politics, support the Republican Party, and you're going to have to link up with uh, eventually the link up with the Christian right to kind of form what what approaches what approaches a majority. And so, you know that, that that's that's essentially where. Uh, this comes from where it's going, though, is is uh, the, the most most dangerous part of it. She was asked if she thought Medicare was constitutional. Right. And her response wasn't. You know, so when she was asked about Brown v. Board of Education, she said there's no argument that anybody could make that 
Brown v. Board of Education is wrong. It's a super precedent. It's part of our national fabric. Brown is, Brown is correct. That's where we are. She didn't say that with Medicare. She said, well, I actually haven't read that law review article, so I'm not sure what reasoning it advances to make the claim that Medicare is unconstitutional, which is insane. Because all, all you'd have to say is, no, I don't have to read an article right. that, that, that argues that Medicare is unconstitutional, because I can tell you off the bat that it's not unconstitutional. Medicare is fine. It's been a part of our uh, politics for, what, 65 years, and, and, it's, and it's always going to continue to be. Underneath that is the, is the threat to what is known as the administrative state. You know, the Scalia's of the world you know, have, have, have made the argument that basically every federal bureaucracy is unconstitutional, that the only people that are allowed to write rules and regulations uh, are lawmakers, or it's Congress it, itself. Congress doesn't have the capacity uh, to write regulations at the scale that you need for a modern economy like ours. And so the, they would say, well, then that's all, that's all gone. You know, the EPA can't exist. The CFPB can, can't exist. And, you know, certainly you can't try to do Medicare for all that, you know, we will, we will rule that to be unconstitutional. And that's, that was kind of the, the, the hint that you got from her refusal to say that Medicare, um, that Medicare was a constitutional use of the government spending power. So watching the hearings and and seeing how Feinstein in particular um, conducted herself, uh, I th- what was what's what's her strategy here? Like I've, I I couldn't wrap my head around it. Maybe I'm missing something. Is like three dimensional chess? I think that she felt like Barrett's going to get confirmed, and so she's not going to bother with it. That, that's the best I could I could think. Um, yeah. It was. Uh, and also, it seemed like they were trying to make sure that she doesn't overturn the ACA, uh, though that's not much of an actual threat, because if if the this is a big if, but if Democrats take the White House and the Senate, uh, all they have to do is with a one line fix, um, fix the statute that they're saying makes Obamacare un- unconstitutional. They could they could put it in any House bill they're passing that's a spending bill, even if uh, even if Republicans do continue to control the Senate, and then it's completely on Republicans that they, you know, destroyed the thing. Right. Would, I mean, would that work in terms of I mean that same line of argument potentially if there was a Medicare for All bill presented over the next few years? No, because uh, well, no, no, because r- right now the ACA is being challenged on on statutory grounds, mm-hmm. essentially. It's already been ruled that it's constitutional, but now they're saying, because you took this mandate and knocked it down to zero, it's no longer a tax. John Roberts said that because it's a tax, it's okay. Right. Now it's not a tax, now it's not okay. You can't sever the mandate from the whole thing, and so the whole thing has to fall. So to fix it, all you have to do is put back in the mandate and call it a $5 tax or a $1 tax or whatever, and you've completely fixed the, the opposition to it. When it comes to Medicare for all, you'd have to put in something either that said uh, Supreme Court cannot strike this down. Does it, Supreme Court does not have review power over this, which would be a direct challenge to Marbury versus Madison, and that'd be mm-hmm. its own mess. Or you'd have to uh, say that uh, while you're passing it, you're also adding justices to the Supreme Court. Or you'd kind of have to put make it, go into effect immediately or, or very quickly 
so that the justices don't have time to strike it down before everybody has has coverage and then they just kind of politically blink in front of it but they would argue not that it it has a statutory problem that could be fixed but that the congress just simply doesn't have the power to create uh something like single payer and so therefore the whole thing is is unconstitutional you're not giving me a lot of hope right <laughs> well you, i mean you, well the, we, we've confronted courts like this before um okay. you know lincoln you know, you know, heading into the heading into the Civil War in the 1850s, that's when you got Dred Scott, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, and Dred Scott was uh, was, you know, supporters of Dred Scott thought like, okay, this is great, this is going to expand slavery to the entire country, and you could see how that that actually was the kind of logic of of that of that decision, and it, it basically said that you can't oppose slavery. It basically banned the entire platform of of the Republican Party. And the Republicans politicized the court in response. They said these these judges are corrupt. They're they're frauds. They they fat shamed a bunch of them. They they mocked them. They ridiculed them. They ran against them. Uh, and when they when they got into power, they didn't necessarily have to pack the court immediately, because a bunch of you know three or four of them rebelled against the United States and just fled the Supreme Court and joined the Confederacy. But then they did they did expand the court. Um, they did a whole bunch of different things to politically manipulate the court so that Lincoln's agenda and the radical Republican agenda could get through. And they did, and they, they faced a hostile court again, not they, but the same movement faced a hostile court in the 30s with, with FDR. And again, they politicized it. Uh, they, they attacked, you know, FDR attacked the, the Supreme Court, threatened to pack it, and all of a sudden, all of these things that the court had found unconstitutional, they're like, you know what, actually... All these programs are fine. Don't pack the court. And so court packing from the 30s is looked at as this big uh, you know, political mm -hmm. uh, failure on the part of FDR. And they try to hang it around his neck. Uh, but in fact, it was a it was a big success. It, it, it enabled it enabled him to, to get his agenda through, which is which is really what what people want and what what you want as a political movement. You know, who cares if there's one justice or a hundred justices? Like what matters is are the decisions they make. So if you can right. cow them into making the the right decisions by by threatening, then you don't actually need to go ahead and pack it. And so there's some hope that the the court people like Kavanaugh and Roberts, because those are your swing boats now. Kavanaugh's your swing boat uh, would 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 stare at the abyss of of the of the politicization of the court. Would recognize what happened to it in the 1860s, 70s, and also in the 30s, and wouldn't want to do that again, so would not um, would would not then uh, disqualify progressive legislation if it if it did get through. But is there any indication that uh, that's that's likely under a Biden administration? I mean, well, the fact that the fact that Roberts upheld the ACA, yeah, um, shows that there's a there's a pragmatic streak. Um, you know, he really did it with Roberts, right? Yeah, he really did mental and intellectual gymnastics to come up with this convoluted argument that the mandate is actually a tax and therefore it's okay. But Medicaid expansion, it has to be optional. Like this entire rewriting of the law, you know, from a from a judge who says that judges shouldn't be writing laws. Um, so, you know, but the fact that he did that shows that even in, inside the Federalist Society, there is there is understanding about that, that they are not immune from politics. 
Hmm. So a mass movement right. um, still has sway o- even over people like Brett Kavanaugh. And that's that's the whole argument Sam Cedar is making about turnout is uh, right. It's the, the 10 million votes. You know, who cares if you're from New York or California? Vote because if, oh, if it comes He's down right, to yeah. one right. little decision, it could sway him. Ryan, super interesting. Thank you uh, for joining. Hope to have you on again soon. And um, go take care of your kids. Yeah. <laughs> I always have these amazing moments with you and your kids. I've, I've been at the Capitol. They were like hugging right. your legs. We were on, I forgot we were reporting on something at TYT back in the day. And then there was this one moment when your daughter had to go to the bathroom and you were on oh, camera. God. Still one of my favorite moments. Got to look that up, no. guys. <laughs> You're a good father, yeah. though. They're learning uh, from you. Well, not not right now, but I will be in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care, Ryan. Right, see you. Up next, we have Representative Chris Rabb and Senator Martin Quisada from Arizona. We're going to talk about Arizona and Pennsylvania and why these are two swing states, Sun Belt, Rust Belt, that we got to look at um, that could be key in determining this election. We'll see how that goes. We'll be back in one second. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We are 19 days from the election, and as we've discussed over and over on this show, it could come down to a few districts and a few states, and the Republicans' only method of winning right now is voter suppression, uh, long-term, short-term, and they're, they've practiced it out uh, in elections that don't matter to them, like, you know, stealing ballot boxes in California where they know they're going to lose. Uh, so that they can really carry it out professionally, legally, through certain opinions and also tactics in states like Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Florida and Texas. It's not really clear right now where the swing states are. So I'm just going to throw a bunch of swing states out there. We're going to talk about them because uh, Arizona didn't used to be called a swing state, although I do remember it turning blue in 2006. Uh, We have Senator Martin Quezada, who I've known since I was uh, 20 years old, I think. And maybe. (laughs) And of course, Rep. Rab from Pennsylvania's 200th district is back. Uh, We're here to talk about what's what's on the line. Um, I'm going to start with Senator. Uh, Senator, so so Arizona has, I think for those who don't don't have background in Arizona, I've been there, um, there's this idea that like, oh, it's like a really conservative state, all those Trump rallies, um, you know, like, dare I say, the right-wing group that's a little conspiratorial, the militiamen at the border. Like, a lot of folks think that's Arizona. Could you, like, set the record straight? What is Arizona politics really like? Yeah, no. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Nomiki. It's great to see you again. But yeah, that's the uh, the opinion I get from a lot of people whenever I travel and say I'm from Arizona. They get, ew, Arizona, really? Uh, but uh, but really, I mean, we're a lot closer than a lot of people realized. Our state legislature right now, the House of Representatives has a, a Republican majority of only 31 to 29. Uh, so it's literally two seats away from flipping. And in the Senate, uh, it's a 17-13 Republican majority, so we we're only three seats away. So we're we're on the doorstep right now. We we elected um, uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema as a, as a Democratic senator, U.S. U.S. senator, uh, and and we've got Mark Kelly running for a really strong race right now to take our other U.S. Senate seat. So we're we're on the verge of really turning solidly purple right now. And you know, but but it's not the first time. Like there was a governor uh, Napolitano who was a Democrat. Um, and she, you know, people don't think she could get elected in the mid-2000s. Then Obama appointed her to Homeland Security, and you got that crazy woman, uh, Jan Brewer, who's finally out. But um, 
but just in terms of like the political makeup. So you're progressive. Uh, Kristen Cinema used to be, and of course she's one of the most conservative. By editor- it's not editorialization; it's fact checked. Like she's one of the more conservative Democrats out there. Um, so even on the Democratic side, there's there's a little bit of a mix of makeup, and and but on the Republican side too, I think you know there's the there's the John McCain types of Republicans, and then there's the far right. Like, can you give us a sense of like where? where the spectrum is and how large each group is. Yeah, no, I, I would say, you know, the we've always had that reputation of having that John McCain uh, type of maverick, um, independent type of Republican. Uh, those numbers are dwindling fast. And we've had some great Republicans in the legislature that I've served with uh, who were very much like McCain, who were willing to cross the aisle, who were willing to do what's right, willing to take a, take a stand, but their numbers have been dwindling very fast and the extreme element of the Republican Party has been growing stronger uh, every year. Um, on the Democratic side, yeah, we, we've got, we definitely have a, a diverse range of, of, of ideals uh, in our caucus and in our party. Uh, I'm definitely one of the more progressive ones, uh, but we've got our more moderate ones as well. So mm-hmm. as we take power, uh, as we're about to take power, um, it'll be interesting to see how all of that shakes out and, and which, which end of that party um, is able to, to uh, have more success. And some of that is just demographics, right? Like there's yes, definitely, definitely. So, so just because I want to switch to like what the other side of the swing state, the, the northern, um, looks like, because they're very different in terms of demographics in Arizona. You know, um, you have a Latino population that's very large, um, young people. But what, how? It's a growing state. Like, what is Phoenix's fifth largest in the country? Yeah, we're we're now the fifth largest city in in the in the nation now, the city of Phoenix. So, how does and, that and- look like politically? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in our urban areas, um, you know, Phoenix, Tucson, our largest cities, even Flagstaff, we're, we're, we're solidly blue. I mean, we've got and we have progressive uh, representation um, in our city councils and in and, and the legislatures that represent, uh, you know, those districts uh, are solidly blue. So Maricopa County is turning blue very fast. We have uh, we've elected Democratic countywide um, officials over the last several cycles. Um, and, and we're looking strong. Uh, on the outskirts of our of Maricopa County and Pima County, uh, all the rural parts of Arizona, <laughs> uh, they're about as red as red can get, uh, and they're getting redder. Um, so uh, it's it's really just a matter of, of population. And right now, uh, we're very uh, uh, centralized in terms of our population. Everyone's moving into Maricopa County, Pima County, and and we're getting we're getting larger. Uh, so I think yeah. that that's that's gonna that's gonna flip us over into the blue side. So, so Judge Arpaio is out of the picture, right? Like done. Oh, he's out. Of, he lost his. He ran for sheriff again this year. Lost his primary race uh, this year. Uh, but you know, he keeps. He, he just won't go away. He keeps on trying. <laughs> that's a, for those of you who don't know. That's the guy. Just look him up. <laughs> I don't even want to yeah. go. With, that's another story. All right, Representative Rab. Let's let's talk about Pennsylvania here. Um, hey, hey, hey. See what's in the background? A voting in the background? Is that a? This is Wells. So that's uh, that's definitely uh, uh, we got back to blue. So these are the Biden uh, folks out in front, but I'm standing in in front of the newest satellite election office in the city of Philadelphia, in the middle of my legislative district. Which, as I like to brag, every show it has the highest voter turnout out of all 203 legislative districts across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's a majority black uh, district. This is a majority black neighborhood, and um, the turnout here has been extraordinary, like 2008 extraordinary. Good. That's great. I mean, because that was the issue. And in 2016 on Election Day, I've talked about this with you two in the past, 
um, I was I was sent out to Pennsylvania to, to Philadelphia because they were expecting all this voter suppression and intimidation, and they wanted me to cover it. And I was like, where where are the lines? I don't see I don't see the lines. I couldn't find. I was I thought I had like the wrong addresses. It was very strange. So it's great, great, great to see that there's that much of a switch from 2016. Oh yeah, the the, the turnout um, we believe is going to be um, the highest in a century. In a century? Yes. Interesting. Uh, the first the first day. So we have early voting for the first time because in Pennsylvania it was illegal. Early voting is a brand new thing. This is only a second election cycle. The first was supposed to happen on April 28th at the primary. But because it amidst the, both the pandemic and civil unrest, it got moved to June 2nd. Hmm. But we only had drop boxes in certain locations a couple days before, and we had no satellite election offices. So now it's the first time that we have multiple satellite election offices where you can physically drop off your mail-in ballot. Because so many people, sorry for the wind, uh, Okay. Because so many people are concerned because of Trump's efforts to destabilize both our democracy and uh, uh, the Postal Service. Yes. No one's trusting the mail. So everybody wants to come in. And so the lines have been ex just extraordinary. And so it's a good sign. And uh, what also people don't understand is they think that somehow mail-in ballots are less than, the, than us pressing the button you know, on the voting machine on election day. And I tell them, uh, there's sheriff's deputies standing right next to the drop box to make sure that nobody does anything untowards, steals it. And once those drop boxes are taken um, from the satellite election office that closes every day, they're, they're wrapped in cellophane and locked in a jail cell. And they can't be opened until election day. So on election day at 7 a.m., these are the ballots that are going to be uh, opened and tallied first, not the machine votes. So that's very, it's a great way to encourage people to come out to vote early when so many people are used to waiting till election day and pressing that vote button on the machine. Well, what are some of the tricks um, that the, the Republicans of far right has, has been pushing to, uh, whether it's legally voter suppress or intimidate, suppress in other ways? Well, the, the usual thing is um, just um, disinformation. Mm -hmm. You know, say vote on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. Or coming up with fake drop boxes like they've done in California. Or um, just purposely sending uh, wrong information, causing panic, confusion, fear. Um, or showing up at polling places. Or just two days ago, I had a guy who was surveilling my neighbors. He was kind of secretly holding up his phone. He wouldn't talk to folks. Like what on the street? Like what was the? Yeah, he was um. He was scoping out the joints. I think figuring out maybe where to send reinforcements, making sure we weren't doing anything, you know, unseemly. But he himself was very shady. So you know, we're watching people are watching us, and that's the best thing about independent media is right. You are watching what everyone else is commentating on and providing that context and that perspective that's so important. If we make this transparent about what folks are doing, they're less uh, able to get away with it. That's right. So, Senator, I mean, what, what's happened in Arizona right now? You, you do have this, uh, I've, I've covered a rally uh, in Phoenix a few weeks ago. Um, 
I just stumbled upon it in Scottsdale. It was a far, far, far right uh, online group uh, that remains unnamed because we don't want to be flagged. <laughs> but I think you guys all know what we're talking about here. Um, in the middle of Phoenix, and, and they, they were... Mm, very, uh, I had to get a COVID test afterwards. I'll just say that. <laughs> Let's yeah. just leave it there. But, but they're, they're, you know, they, they live in another reality and they're organized and they're excited and, and, um, and racist. And, and I worry about what they could potentially do in a swing state like Arizona. So, I mean, are you, what are you guys doing to, in the legislature to, uh, block any sort of actions? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's been difficult. It's been, we've seen more, of action here, election type action, uh, than in any other cycle that I can remember since I've been a part of it, involved in politics. And and you know, because we are a swing state, we've had the visits from both campaigns. They both come uh, and and multiple times and sending multiple people to our state. And then we're seeing those rallies take place uh, on both sides, really. But uh, but but there's an effort really to engage um, uh, engage each and every one of those far right voters. And and they're even sending in. Uh, 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 groups to engage communities in in my district, which is the bluest of the blue districts, uh, and, and in the South Phoenix district, and and we're seeing them make those types of efforts, which show us that 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 they're afraid of what's happening. Uh, but like you said, um, their 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 public health efforts are not the best for sure, uh, and 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 with our COVID numbers. Um, uh, it, it's been real dangerous and it's been real worrying uh, about what how, what type of impact that's going to happen because our numbers continue to go up. Uh, we're getting more and more numbers every day. We're one of the worst states in the nation uh, for handling COVID. So so it's de definitely been frustrating in that in that regard. Have, have they been um, actively trying to intimidate folks in your community? You said that they came in and and in the bluest of well, bluest districts. The intimidation is is pretty constant here in Arizona. So, I mean, those two sides are definitely always uh, um, trying to intimidate uh, uh, the vote, voters all the time. So that that has definitely ramped up a little bit, but it's always been there, and and I think it always will be here in Arizona. It's just we we're a different type of a different type of state. We're the wild wild west in that regard. Uh, so they definitely try to intimidate, uh, try to. Uh, 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 try to scare people uh, and and really try to sh uh, share a lot of um, misinformation, like Representative Rob was saying. Uh, so that's happening a lot here, definitely. Um, the one thing that distinguishes Arizona, I, I find interesting, comparatively to other states that are are just starting to engage in in vote by mail and early voting, Arizona is a is an early voting state, uh, even with the Republicans in control. Um, I think that the number I read was 80% of, of Arizonans uh, vote early. So, you know, I, I don't know how it plays out now with the, because, because the, the laws exist, laws are on the books. So is there anything that they're trying to put forward to potentially block early voting? Well, yeah, and, and that's that's actually one of the things that Arizona has done right uh, over the last several years is is we have a strong early voting system. And so, like you said, 80% of our voters are early voters. Um, what what's different this year, and what 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 the efforts that we're trying to make is try to get the get the voters to actually return their ballots because they receive them, they like to hold on to them, and they like to hold on to them to the last minute. And I do too. In fact, I hold <laughs> on to mine to the last day because I want to see if there's some scandal that erupts, you know, uh, for, <laughs> before I cast my votes. But but a lot of our voters are, they hold on to them and they drop them off on election day. We're trying to encourage them not to do that. And what the other side is doing is they're trying to cast doubt about 
uh, you know, the safety of of those those early votes, the safety of the drop box locations, uh, and 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 the and the safety of even receiving your ballot. Uh, they're telling you your ballot's not going to receive. Don't trust the postal service. Uh, don't trust anything in the mail. Um, and so they're they're really trying to discourage uh, early voting. So that type of of uh, voter fraud uh, type of conspiracy is is being spread like wildfire uh, by the other side here in Arizona. With that being said, what's turnout looking like right now? Give a sense. It, it's looking really good. Uh, we, we've got strong turnout numbers, um, a lot higher than we've seen in, in many, many cycles. So uh, things are looking really good right now. Good, very good. Well, um, okay, so we're gonna be watching this super closely, obviously, and, and I'm, I'm not sure we're gonna do it election day, uh, just yet, but if we don't have the results on election day, I am going to be looking to you guys to come back on to, I have no doubt something's going to be happening in both of your states because we're, we're watching. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. no doubt. Um, thank you so much, Senator Grab. <laughs> thank you very much for, for joining the show today. Yeah, we're happy to. Uh, thank you to everybody for joining the show. Uh, we are, are going to be focusing, I mentioned this at the top, you know, the next two weeks, essentially, I, I want to hone in on specific aspects of what is at stake in this election, what are the potential outcomes of this election, um, and not just that, the Supreme Court fight, uh, and, and also where we have to watch. Like, this, I think, was really important because the states that are, I mean, there's a lot of, of rulings that are happening at the local levels and di district courts. Um, there's been a lot of big fights. So far, it's looking like uh, the the vote is being protected as much as possible, and turnout is really high because that is the biggest uh, the biggest defense that we have. But um, those are the things I want to focus on. But most importantly, what is at stake? Because it is hard, I think, for progressives in particular who've been fighting this fight for a long time. It is really hard to get excited to back a ticket that did not have the same beliefs as we did and is is really a legacy of the past neoliberalism. With that being said, as I said at the top of the show um, and has been repeated in different segments on the show, there is this is a moment in which if you are anywhere to the left of Donald Trump, you know you have to respond to this moment. And even he does because he tried not to, to put out a stimulus and then he realized that was a bad idea and he still wanted to push out some sort of stimulus. So this is a big, big, big moment for us. And um, I'm hoping on this show we can give you guys a path instead of, of debating ad nauseum whether to vote or not. It's really about what do we get out of the vote, what how this affects uh, the long term of the progressive movement, what we do if Trump is voted out, what we do if Trump refuses to leave office, what we do if Trump wins, what we do um, when we go to the why it matters to vote and why it matters for down ballot races that we vote in this election, why it matters at the top of the ticket. As Sam Cedar says, when you have 10 million more votes, Justice Roberts, if he's presented seven cases and he just, they decide the Supreme Court decides to take one of them, and that one case comes down to a signature provision that is that is opinion based or politically based, Justice Roberts might be moved by ten million more people turning out at the polls and maybe an electoral landslide as well um, in that decision that could determine the outcome of the presidency. All right, special thanks to Professor Harvey K, who is mixing it up in the live chat as usual. Uh, you got to go out and check out his Twitter page because he just shared a photo of Barack Obama um, had his Thomas Paine book on his bookshelf. I, I don't know if he read it, but uh, it was on his bookshelf. So great advertising for Harvey K. And big thanks to our moderators, Bob, Billy, and Chokin for all of your help. We will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern for Femme Friday.